Welcome to On the Sofa with Victoria, where authors and industry insiders discuss the latest trends and themes in crime fiction. I'm Victoria Selman, author of the Zeba McKenzie series, and Truly Darkly Deeply, a novel which examines a serial killer's legacy through the eyes of his daughter. He's a monster, hated, reviled by everyone but you. Truly Darkly Deeply by Victoria Selman is a mind-blowing, unputdownable serial killer thriller of a very different kind, perfect for all fans of Mindhunter, Criminal Minds and Girl A. Out now in hardback, ebook and audiobook. As my readers will know, I'm more than a little fascinated by true crime and the criminal psyche. A fascination that was kick-started by Mindhunter, the seminal work that takes us behind the scenes of the FBI's Behavioural Science Unit and the inception of criminal profiling. So to have its author, Mark Olshaker, as a special guest today is a huge honour. Welcome to Crime Time, Mark. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Victoria, and congratulations on the new novel, which, as you know, I read in advanced form, and I was really impressed, really knocked out by it. You've you've really captured uh, some nuances and some very interesting ideas about serial killers and their victims without in any way glamorizing uh, the killer or would-be killer, and uh, uh, I was certainly uh, surprised by the ending, so that's great. Oh, Mark, thank you. That that means the world to me, as you know as well. I mean, when I got your endorsement um, on the email, I just it made my day. Made not just my day; it made my week. I was I was ah. blown away. So thank you, thank you so much for all your support. Um, you of course collaborated on Mindhunter with uh, John right. Douglas, who's known by mm-hmm. many as the father of profiling. Um, what is it? Do you think? I mean, I know what fascinates me about profiling: this idea that you can tell so much about an offender simply by looking at the way he or she commissions their crime. What do you think the general popularity is? I mean, the show is, of course, as well. Well, I think it, I think it really is tied in directly with why people are so interested in true crime, particularly mm-hmm. these days when the world seems like it's kind of going through a nervous breakdown on <laughs> a level. Yeah. Uh, and I think the reason is because true crime really is about what we novelists uh, call the human condition which is why people do the things they do. But true crime is, uh, as you've shown in in your books, is the human condition writ large at the extremes. We all have feelings of love, hate, jealousy, resentment, revenge, uh, triumph, uh, defeat, whatever you want to call it. But the people who go beyond what we do, uh, the people who have no particular limitations on their behavior, who don't consider other people as valid individuals. Uh, I think uh, we're fascinated by them because they show what we would be like if we were monsters, uh, if, if you will, uh, which, which hopefully we're not, but we all have that little element of it uh, in, in one sort of midnight of our soul or, or, or corner of our brain. So I think uh, that's it. 
I think another aspect of it is uh, just wanting to know what happens, uh, what happens next. That's always a big issue, both in true crime and and crime fiction. Yeah. And uh, I think we, uh, we we want the vicarious thrill of yeah. seeing danger that we're not really part of. And I hope, uh, I really hope that a key word in all of this is empathy, that we can understand what other people are going through and empathize with them in ways that the criminals themselves do not. And that's what Mark marks this as different. I'm very interested in this idea, though, that actually we all, of course, we all have a dark side, don't we? It's how we can write. As, I mean, you're, not, you're a novelist as, as, as well. Um, and I wonder, because to my mind, it had almost been this idea of otherness. The, the fascination yes. of something so different. But yes. I'm intrigued to actually what you're saying is no, there is there is actually something that we can funny enough relate to. I guess it's that Hobbesian idea. Well, I think there's both I think there's both. And look, as as you as you well know, both from your studies and from your writing, uh, all human behavior is on a continuum. Yes. And so it's where do we each fit on the continuum? And you know, uh, with my partner John Douglas, who was sort of the premier profiler and the uh, uh, and the pioneer of behavioral profiling, mm-hmm. uh, he has launched so many fictional characters, and each of these characters is described as well. He has the rare ability, the rare gift, or is it a curse to think like the criminal? Well, you know, I think that's a little overblown. I mean. Yeah. If a detective can't think like a criminal, he's probably in the wrong business. So we all have that ability to put ourselves uh, there. Fortunately, we just don't act on it. And I think what we try to do, both in crime fiction and in true crime, is to show the difference, the other, the both ends of the continuum, Mm -hmm. Uh, the criminal who has no compassion, no uh, no empathy for anybody else. Everybody else is dehumanized, is objectified. Uh, whatever his needs are is, and I say he because it's almost always a he. Yes. Uh, and then we have the victims, the victims' families, uh, the law enforcement people who generally are uh, doing God's work, if you will, or mm. uh, are completely innocent. Yes. And I'm interested by the what if, because, of course, with crime fiction, it always starts with what if, doesn't it? In one way or another, what if dot, dot, dot. Do you think part of our fascination as well in in thinking about this idea that we all have some darkness within us? There's Mm -hmm. also the question of what if dot, 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 I were in his shoes? What if I had had his the the crucible of events that shaped him had shaped me instead? Would I have become that person? Well, absolutely. And that's and that's certainly very important in in what we do, what Almost every one of the books that I've written with John, it deals with the idea of nature versus nurture, uh, how much is inbred, how much is born in, and how much is shaped by environment, by family and all that. And the answer is both are very important. I mean, if you have somebody who is sort of hardwired for compulsivity, for uh, lack of empathy, and they have a really bad childhood, uh, they're abused, they're neglected, whatever, uh, they're likely to uh, to have a bad outcome. On the other hand, um, most of the serial killers or violent predators we see have brothers who don't turn out that way. So it's a very, it's a very difficult and and nuance thing to try to figure out. Mm. And, you know, I, I'm not really 
a determinist on this. I don't think that uh, you are necessarily set in a way by both your nature and your nurture, because the one thing we always stress is, um, and I know that you stress this in your uh, your books too, is that there's always choice. Uh, choice is, you know, for a novelist or a screenwriter, uh, choice is character. Character is choice. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if we get to the point where we are so scientifically, neurologically deterministic that yeah. every thought can be, uh, uh, every thought, every impulse can be determined by a neurochemical synapse in the brain, then what happens to our moral universe? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything comes down to that. And thinking about choice, then on the flip side, so you've got the choice mm -hmm. of, let's call them the character within the novel or in the serial right. in real life, but there's also the, the choice of the novelist, isn't there? Yes. How they're choosing to portray. And I'm very interested, particularly in your perspective, given your, your wealth of experience, what you think of, generally speaking, the portrayal of serial killers within crime fiction culture, even, let's say, so we can, we can include film in that. I mean, the Hannibal, we've, we've touched on this briefly in other conversations yeah. um, separately, haven't we? But this idea that Hannibal Lecter could be a real person, we've, I mean, you, you were very interesting on that. You say it was, it was almost impossible given the profile. Of yeah, the I, I, I think so. I mean, he's a very dramatic character and uh, fascinating to read. And let's face it, Silence of the Lambs and the book before that, Red Dragon by Tom Harris, mm. were kind of the core texts for this whole... Uh, you know, if John and I sort of started the uh, serial killer uh, behavioral profiler genre in, uh, in true crime, mm -hmm. Tom Harris certainly started it before we did in, uh, uh, in, in fiction. And to be very honest, uh, what John and his colleagues did in terms of behavioral profiling, this really is an, uh, an example of uh, life imitating art because it really starts in the 19th century with novelists like uh, Wilkie Collins, Edgar Allan Poe, yeah. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I mean, they were really the their characters were really the first profilers. Mm. So uh, mm. uh, it took many decades for real life to catch up with that. Yes, that's interesting. And looking at looking at the characters themselves, then as well, and particularly let's let's stick with Hannibal for a minute, just because he's mm -hmm. such a fabulous creation, whether whether he's realistic or not. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? And actually, and maybe this is just my perception, so do correct me. But it seems both in in fiction and in reality that U.S. serial killers have a very different character, if you like, to U.K. ones. There's almost a baroque nature to U.S. serial killers, whereas. The UK ones, you think of Dennis Nielsen, for example, and, and right. <laughs> throwing flushing things down drains. There's something very dull and ordinary. And I wonder, I wonder what that's all about. Is is that a misconception on my part? Or is no, I, I don't I don't think it is. I remember um, I was uh, privileged enough to be invited to uh, Scotland Yard's uh, Black Museum, uh, the Museum of Crime, on a number of occasions. Mm. And there they have. Dennis Nilsson's uh, his kitchen setup, basically, where he uh, right. where he both uh, boiled down the bodies of his uh, victims and also um, made uh, uh, chili and curry uh, dishes for uh, for his uh, his colleagues at uh, at company picnics, right. both in the same pot, by the way. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> You couldn't make that up, could you? No, no, I, I, I don't think I, I, I'm not that clever. I don't think I could make up something like that. But that's more of 
more realistic than somebody like Hannibal Lecter. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hannibal Lecter uh, is, I mean, somebody who was that, uh, that clever, that smart, Mm -hmm. he wouldn't have to be a serial killer. He would, uh, he would get his satisfaction in other ways. I mean, one thing we've determined through our research is that one thing that almost all serial killers share, almost all violent predators is both a deep seated sense of ang- uh, of uh, personal anxiety and inadequacy, and at the same time, a feeling of grandiosity and entitlement, and that the world owes me more than it's giving me, and I'm much better than this, and I should be in a better situation. So that triangulates with a sense of resentment, mm-hmm. and that creates a very dangerous person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, that's, that's really, I think the recipe for this type of person. And when you combine that with a total lack of empathy, uh, which is kind of the, uh, the hallmark of sociopathology, uh, then you've, then you've got a very dangerous person who really doesn't care what happens to anybody else. All the rest of us are props in their life. And so, uh, that's, that's kind of the recipe. And as far as the other part of your question about why American serial killers turn out to be more baroque, the BTK strangler, the 44 caliber son of Sam mm. killer, uh, the Zodiac, uh, you know, whatever. Mm. I think we've got such a media intense environment over here that um, remember these people are, uh, this is their greatest satisfaction in life. They're on the hunt nightly. Whatever these people do in real life, whether they have a job, whether they have a wife, children, this is the most important thing to them. So even though they can't reveal themselves per se, they really want the recognition that that comes with it. Uh, In fact, several of them, uh, Son of Sam and BTK Strangler come to mind, actually wrote letters to, uh, uh, to law enforcement authorities and media uh, saying that uh, this is the name that they wanted. Yes, yes, exactly. So that's interesting. So actually they are, and of course it makes sense almost when I say it loud, it sounds obvious, doesn't it? But they are literally a product of their environment. So they are playing Absolutely. for their audience. Mm-hmm. And it is an audience, isn't it? And I suppose even even the staging of, um, of, of crime scenes in a sense. Of, of, of sure. I mean, and that's, that's a lot of profiling is understanding the staging, mm-hmm. uh, whether the staging shows contempt for the victim shows a certain amount of care and involvement. Uh, sometimes it, uh, in, in some cases, it just shows out and out uh, mental illness. And, you know, while we're on that subject, I would submit that almost anybody who uh, commits a, a, a violent uh, murder on an innocent person has a certain degree of mental illness, yes. but uh, that doesn't mean that the mental illness obviates the, the guilt uh, in most cases, uh, you know, this goes back to uh, to British common law and the McNaughton case, uh, mm-hmm. where Daniel McNaughton uh, tried to assassinate uh, Sir Robert Peel, the prime minister, and in fact uh, was able to kill his uh, his secretary. Um, and we basically use the same uh, criteria for insanity today that were used in the McNaughton case uh, hundreds of years ago, which is. Does the person understand the difference between right and wrong? And are they able to conform their behavior to the dictates of society? And I would say most of these guys do. Uh, we have, I, you probably have it in, in Britain too. We have a kind of a test called the, uh, the policeman at the elbow test. 
mm-hmm. where uh, you say if a uniformed police officer had been uh, uh, observing uh, this crime, would it have taken place? Yeah. And if not, then the person probably has a fair amount of uh, ability to conform his behavior. And uh, if it would have, then the probably probably person is legally insane. Yeah. Uh, but uh, like most of these right? people yeah. do understand the difference between right and wrong. They just don't care. It's not important to them. Okay, absolutely. And what about thinking again of um, perception? And I guess now in the wider sense, so not just how we're portraying them within popular culture, but also the broader consciousness. So thinking about, it's interesting, isn't it? Most people, generally, most people, whether they have a huge interest in serial killers or not, can rattle off the name of a number. You know, yes. most people will tell you about Ted Bundy. They might be BTK, whoever. But the victims that they can rattle off are few and far between, aren't they? And I wonder. Absolutely. And I think this is a very important point you bring up, Victoria, because we always uh, the victim is always most important to us. That's why we do what we do. That's why uh, police officers and detectives and law enforcement people and prosecutors do what they do. Mm -hmm. Everything is for the victim. And we really make it our business to personalize the victim. And uh, I think in your book, what one of the things that impressed me is um, you show that the victims in any kind of violent case, particularly a murder, are not just the dead person, but all the people around. Yeah. And so uh, uh, every every murder creates an entire universe of victims. Yes, a whole ripple effect. Isn't it? But it's interesting. I mean, let's pick up on that point because it is it is interesting as well, you know, touching on the, the border, border victim, if you like, in terms of the family. And I'm wondering, I mean, something that fascinates me personally, I guess, about serial killers is, some, is the way they're able to dupe those close to them, the way that they can live supposedly normal lives with spouses who have no idea what they're getting up to on their extracurricular basis, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's that story, isn't there, with um, Jim, uh, Jerome Brudos, the, the shoe fetish. Yes. Um, and how, you, you know the story better than me, I'm going to say it all wrong, but didn't he make his wife buzz his intercom on his garage before she came in when he was up to no good? Oh, there's all, there's all kinds of things like that. Yes. Um, uh, I re- remember Dennis Rader, the BTK strangler, used to keep... Uh, uh, keep dead bodies in a freezer, which he had locked so his wife couldn't uh, see. People find it difficult to believe that uh, these people can have somewhat normal home lives. Yes. Dennis Rader not only uh, had a job, a wife and two children, oh, yeah. uh, he was also the president of his church. Yeah, isn't that I mean, extraordinary? I mean, yeah. th- this is this is a fascinating and bizarre detail, but yeah. uh, it's not unusual. Mm. I mean, I wonder if that's part of the grandiosity, though, this idea of... Um, well, I think so. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the sense of entitlement. Yeah. And uh, and again, going back to Raider, he considered each of his murders art. I mean, this was his... He called them his projects. Yeah. He would sketch them out in advance. Uh, so this was the most important thing in his life, which is hard for us to believe. I mean, hard for us to grasp us. Uh, we somewhat normal people um but uh you can sort of understand it i mean on a not saying we would relate but understanding and relating are different aren't they and i wonder if part of it is this idea of being out of control feeling out of control because you are inadequate but being able to control somebody else to that extent that you're actually controlling their death yes and and i think to to some of these people that is the ultimate thrill to be able to play god to have uh to have a life and death uh 
uh, power over these people to be able to manipulate, dominate, and control uh, to the extent that they want. Um, our my new book with John Douglas, which I think is is coming out in Britain soon, is called "When a Killer Calls," and uh, it's about a uh, young man who not only attacked and uh, and kidnapped a seventeen-year-old uh, uh, high school girl. Um, but also kept her alive long enough to make have her write a letter to her parents saying she was going to die, and which is just incredible to me the amount of courage and grace that this this young woman had, and the the cruelty and narcissism of her killer, who then uh, made a number of calls to uh, to the family just because he wanted to continue that relationship uh, and dominate it. And uh, they puppet master, I guess, with their emotions as well. As, as yeah. Paris. Yeah. No, absolutely. it's an extraordinary book. I've read it. And it's, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, but why, why is it? How is it? I mean, I guess this is the bit that I struggle with. And I know a lot of people generally, when, you know, you, you find out about a serial killer who's had a spouse or had children and you can't believe that they didn't know. And of course, this is a topic we explore in Truly Darkly as well. How how is it that you're able to keep? The, I mean, I, I I think I know most things about my husband. Yeah. I think he'd, I can't imagine he could keep that. Yeah, you would be surprised if he. <laughs> yeah, I'd be very surprised. Yeah. So it's um, hard, isn't it, to get our heads around? Well, you know, I think uh, without being too general, yeah. uh, a lot of these women, you know, are are not do not have a lot of self esteem. They are not from very successful or. Uh, strong family backgrounds. Um, they want love. They want, uh, uh, they want support. And these people give it to them. I mean, the thing that's hard for us to believe, uh, although I think you've captured it very well in your latest novel, is a lot of these guys are really charming. I mean, this like Ted Bundy, for instance, mm-hmm. this, is, this is their stock and trade. Uh, some of them are totally inadequate. And you see the, the murders are more blitz style where they just overwhelm the victim before uh, mm-hmm. uh, and oftentimes will um, have sex with their dead corpses because that's the only thing they feel comfortable uh, mm-hmm. with. But a lot of these guys are very charming and uh, and really can seduce somebody because that's what's important to them. I mean, if, if that's what you're thinking about 24 hours a day and you have some basic skills that's what you're going to do. Um, actually, the control isn't just over your victim. It's over absolutely. your environment as well. And actually, that's a very interesting point that I've never thought of before, but it, it makes absolute sense, which is there's a profile of a serial killer, but then mm-hmm. there's also the profile of the serial killer's wife. Yes. And I, I suppose that's like, you know, we talk about abuse. To I mean, which, you know, I think you probably have the same thing in, in Britain that we have in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, how many women fall in love with and write love letters to uh, incarcerated killers in in prison. And you think, why do they do that? And uh, I think there's a couple of reasons. First of all, there's this thrill. Sometimes they're very sexy. Uh, they're also totally safe because they're in prison. Um, and maybe there's this sense that they can change them, which, you know, is crazy in and of itself. But uh, um, we found that with... Only one exception I can think of, a woman uh, who, who married Damien Eccles, the uh, convicted uh, uh, West Memphis Three killer, who turned out to be innocent, uh, fortunately. Uh, mo- I think most of the women who fall in love with or marry uh, uh, serial killers in prison 
are pretty inadequate themselves. I'm, I'm sorry to say that, but I think that's that's what we found. It's true. I mean, why else would you be attracted to somebody exactly. like that? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's um, Richard Ramirez, of course, is the one that's yeah. in mind. I mean, you know, he's got huge fans, huge numbers of them. <laughs> they send him all sorts of photos and everything. Like, do not know what he did to his female victims. Mm-hmm. But they do know, and that's... And, you know, how, how many love letters did Charles Manson get over the years? And right. I think some, someone ultimately married him. I mean, I think this person was... You know, very weird, but uh, someone married Bundy. I mean, you know, it, yeah. it's it, yeah, it's extraordinary. And I guess that's it goes to the point you raised at the very beginning of the conversation. Of it's it's fascinating because it's so alien to us, and yet, right. yeah, you know, and we we tr- we try not to make these people glamorous in any way, but um, I think their power and notoriety is uh, is glamorous to uh, a lot of inadequate people. Yes. And of course, I mean that leads on to all sorts of conversations about celebrity yeah. in our in our day as well. Oh, absolutely! Which is a whole other topic. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, this this is just a, a, another uh, a, another aspect of that. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, I was having a discussion last night. Uh, we have a show in the United States. Uh, it's a series that's been on for a long time called "Keeping Up with the Kardashians." Right. Um, I don't know if you have it over there. We do. But, I don't personally watch it, but oh, I, okay. you know um, <laughs> I am fascinated by this show because I'll probably get into trouble for saying this. <laughs> it is so banal. The people are so uninteresting. Yeah. They have no accomplishments that I've been able to discern, <laughs> and yet they have a huge audience. Yeah. Uh, so a celebrity for its own sake uh, seems to be a tremendous draw. Yeah. And of course, that's so different from, but you know, years gone by, we actually had to have a talent. And, and yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> we could all do it now, eh? <laughs> Gosh, Mark, I'm, this was fascinating. So thank you so much. Well, thank for you. Time. Thank you, and and best of luck with the novel. Thank you so much. You've been listening to On the Sofa with Victoria on Crime Time FM. If you've enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate and review on iTunes and join in the chat on Twitter using the hashtag On the Sofa with Victoria or drop me a line at Victoria Selman. I'd love to hear from you and hope you'll join me next time. Mm-hmm.